session is really looking at um, the academic view, um, and I think it will make quite an interesting um, contrast to the previous session that we heard. I think some of the same issues will come up, but I think probably um, some different issues too. Um, we're going to work in a slightly different um, order than um, on the programme here. We're going to start with Professor Hugh Davis from St Andrews, and then we're going to hear from Professor Stephen Hanney from Brunel. Then we're going to hear from Dr Alan Canning from Leicester, and then from Professor Vicky Randall from Essex. So, as in the last session, I'm going to ask uh, all the speakers to try and stick to as close to five minutes as possible. These are academics, though, and so um, <laughs> um, uh, they, they may, we may go up to seven minutes each. We'll, we'll, we'll try not to. Um, but again, to leave a, a nice bit of discussion um, for, for the rest of the session. So um, let's start with Mr. Hugh Davis. Well, thank you. Thank you very much indeed for that introduction, Anne. Um, I'm always aware that uh, academic is sometimes used as a synonym for uh, of no practical value. Uh, and so I'm, uh, it was some trepidation that I step into such an informed and eclectic audience. But I want to make a number of, of general observations um, from a whole swathe of research literature uh, about what I've learned about how, how uh, research relates to knowledge and indeed to notions of evidence and about how knowledge gets used, uh, gets applied, has influence and perhaps uh, generates some impact. Uh, and in making these observations, um, I'm going to make a number of assertions along the way, some of which I hope will have quite widespread appeal, uh, others of which I hope will simply provoke debate, uh, and all of which I think uh, contain a degree of challenge, um, a degree of tension, and indeed some pitfalls. So the, the first observation I'll make is that research uh, does not speak for itself. Um, it, research needs to be actively translated, it needs to be set in context, it needs to be brought to life. It needs to be animated in some way by its interaction with, with human needs, human desires, human challenges in various contexts. By itself, uh, research represents just data. Um, in a social context, in, in, in conversation, in dialogue, it has a capacity to generate new understanding, new knowledge, and, and perhaps um, change. The second point I'd make is that research uh, doesn't stand alone. So any piece of research needs to sit, first of all, most obviously in the context of other research that relates to the same set of uh, topics or same set of issues. Uh, but also any piece of research has to sit in a much broader context. Uh, it needs to sit in the context of the local systems, the local cultures, uh, the local resource constraints. Uh, it needs to be interpreted um, in, in the light of what is possible, what is practicable, uh, what is politically uh, um, acceptable. So uh, research, empirical research, has to, has to sit alongside uh, more conceptual ways of understanding the world and has to link in and engage with experiential and tacit knowledge. Um, third, I'd say that using research is often not an event. Uh, it's often much, something that's much more uh, ongoing, uh, more dynamic, and much more iterative than simply uh, a, a single uh, event that happens at a single point in time. So research use is often faltering. It's often stop-start. Uh, sometimes it's dramatic in its effects, uh, and then timeliness is key, timeliness is, is all. But often uh, research and the use of research is a slow and percolative process uh, in the fact that ideas slowly seep from academia into other worlds and start to shift the language uh, and the framing and the terminology of different players in those other non-academic worlds. And I think that processual use of research often involves a good degree of unlearning, a good degree of letting go of things that we thought we knew as well as the acquisition of, of new, new ways of knowing. So it's much more about an ebb and flow of understanding than it is simply about a steady accumulation of understanding. I think knowledge is often co-produced. Um, it's produced in dialogue, it's produced in conversation, it's produced over time. Um, it's a shared process, a collaborative process, that starts to break down and sometimes dissolve the distinction between different roles, roles of policymaker or roles of researcher or roles of advisor. Uh, where research technical expertise around data meets other forms of expertise uh, rooted in experience and in practical application and a sense of what is possible uh, out there in the political world. So what I would argue then is that uh, knowledge production from research is a deeply social and a deeply contextual process and it makes much more sense to talk about knowing uh, than it does to talk about knowledge. Uh, it's interactive, it's brought about through dialogue, and of course it intersects with notions of power. And finally, and perhaps uh, most important of all, I think I would like to uh, put forward the idea 
that uh, the most interesting uses of research and sometimes the most influential uses of research um, are often not about instrumentalist decision-taking, um, although that might be important in many settings. Uh, they're, also, they're less about uh, knowing uh, what to do uh, and saying do this and don't do that. Uh, research has often got a very powerful role uh, in, the, in challenging uh, and reshaping our mental models, uh, our frameworks, uh, our conceptual framings, our ways of understanding the world, our conceptual categories that we use, indeed the very language that we use, that we reach for to talk about uh, public policy problems. In that reshaping of our assumptions, the reshapings of our framings, uh, it might shake our prior knowledge. Uh, it might certainly also even begin to reshape some of our values. And so I always worry when we have an overemphasis uh, on research-based decision-taking that can obscure uh, this much more important role for research that is slow and purposive over time. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, now we'll hear from Professor Stephen Hanning. Th thanks very much. And um, as an academic, I've got a PowerPoint presentation. I'm going to be talking quite a bit about my own work. And I've got references, everything that's wrong. Um, and I've also got a linear model. So let's go. Um, so uh, from the Health Economics Research Group at Brunel University, and I think a historical perspective might be quite useful because whilst I agree things are perhaps changing, there's also an extent in which th 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 things are going in a cyclical way. So um, going right back, Pride and Prejudice, Jane Austen. It is a truth universally acknowledged. This is a rewriting of the opening sentence. That a single researcher in possession of a good finding must be in want of a policymaker. <laughs> Going back 40 years, Rothschild experiment in government departments in the 1970s tried to get more research used in government departments. There was a formative evaluation of this in the old DHSS by Maurice Kogan and Mary Henkel. They made lots of innovative uh, analyses here, developed a multimodality concept that patterns of uh, policymaking are very different, even within the same parts, of, or even within different parts of a government department. The collaborative approach is very important, so trying to get researchers and policymakers together to set agendas is difficult but important. Knowledge brokering roles they explored showed how these are important to get receptive bodies, the policymakers, policymaking bodies, to take notice of research, the importance of evaluative criteria for research recognising policy relevance. So that has informed approaches to assessing research impact uh, that we've developed, and in particular, uh, the HERD uh, payback framework developed by Martin Beckson and myself, and uh, two main elements a categorization and a model. So we have multi-dimensional categorization. These are the benefits he was saying earlier. We want, perhaps we want to look more, or it's important to consider what actually happens, what are the benefits, the impacts. So we have knowledge production, targeting future research, capacity building. These are the traditional academic ones. Then moving on, of course, informing policies, informing product developments. And these are often key to later uh, impacts such as health and health sector benefits and the broader economic benefits. Then we also have a logic model of how to assess benefits. So this isn't saying this is how impacts necessarily arise but it's saying how we have found it most useful to try and assess them. Seven stages, two interfaces, informed by Kogan and Henkel. It has been applied in many countries. We've also used it to analyse, and the point was made from the MRC, about nice policy-making use of, use of research. We looked at the impact of the Health Technology Assessment Programme, and over 70% of the projects there seem to have impacted on policy because there are receptor bodies created to look at the evidence. Okay, this is our horrible linear model, but what we've found is that it is very useful, actually, to assess impact. We can't go through it all, but some of the key points of this are that we put the research in the con wider context of the political, the professional, the social system, and also, of course, the existing stock of knowledge. Then the interfaces are really important, the interfaces between the wider environment and the research itself. Because can re uh, policymakers actually construct research agendas that researchers will want to and are able to work on. The permeability of the interface is a key issue. And also, we find this useful because it helps to identify where we might look to find impacts. And it helps to structure case studies, and so it, it, it helps inform data collection, uh, data analysis, the, the, the write-up of the data, in a way that helps to address some key issues in this whole field when you're trying to assess the impact research has made, and that is issues of attribution. I thought it might be useful very quickly to run through a few, a few three quick examples. 
So an impact of the, we, look, we looked at the impact of some research on heart transplants. The interface was very important here, the, the projects, the specification interface. Policymakers liaised with researchers to try and create a single economic evaluation based on research proposals to look at the two pioneering heart transplant programs in the UK. They're a receptive body, the, the Department of Health organised itself into the likely findings of a final report for interaction with the researchers and the absorption of interim uh, findings. The findings were relevant for a key policy decision. They were supportive, probably, of the way the policymakers wanted to go, but the policymakers did have to make a decision in an absolutely crucial and controversial area, and so the findings were helpful for that. And the initial policy to increase programme funding was announced in the morning after they'd received the report in the afternoon. So there can be very quick policy impacts. I know that's not the usual example, and usually it happens like that, but in some instances it does, and this does help to analyse why. Now, another example we looked at, the impact, we looked at the project, the impact of a project on the career of women doctors. Little did I know when we, when we did this that in the mid-90s that you know, our then 10-year-old daughter would eventually become a medic and might benefit from some of the analysis here, but this time it's strictly independent. We looked at the, the work done at the PSI by uh, Isabel Allen, and we considered there was considerable impact identified from the project, knowledge production, uh, targeted further research, but it had a substantial impact on policies. From, there was an official committee set up by the Department of Health to analyse the findings. It was known as the Isabel Allen Committee, uh, and it, it included changes in the retainer scheme, careers in surgery, etc. And various changes were implemented. Now, of course, there were lots of influences on this, lots of other influences on this. But what we argue is that by working through, we're using the payback framework, we were able to examine the various stages helped us explore complex attribution and show this work did actually make an important impact in addition to all the other things that were going on. The framework also helped to identify various factors linked to impact, the importance of a receptor body, the Department of Health at both interfaces, the role of a knowledge broker in promoting findings more widely, and the quality and timing of the research, high quality, and that helped ministers to be able to use it. Final example, um, the impact, we looked at an evaluation of Heart Start Scotland programme, um, there, we, we described various stages using the payback framework. So the topic identification, this was an area previously there had been manual defibrillators to start, start, start the heart, a little used in the UK. Automated ones came in, they required much less training. Scotland had a scheme and they, went, they were the first nation uh, in the world to make this scheme ev- go everywhere in the whole ambulance system. The PI, Chair Evaluation Committee, secured funding to look at it and we, we looked at this evaluation. It, it had impact in all categories, but including in policy, and in several, these arose in several different ways. So it informed the policy of the Scottish ambulances and the Scottish Government to fund the, the renewal, informed guidelines and training documents in many different levels, European, international, and that was traditional academic dissemination, and also an expert who was independent, but really liked the findings and acted as a product champion, and almost certainly contributed to the, to the uh, findings being used to influence the policy to take up defibrillators in many countries. So that's a very quick run-round of how we think this framework helps us to analyse things. Wow. Okay. <laughs> Thank you very much. I feel a bit bad now because I think. <laughs> anyway, let, now let's move on to uh, hear from Dr. Alan Camp. <coughs> well, uh, thank you. Uh, good afternoon. Um, oops. Here we are. Um, uh, I am not uh, a policy researcher. Um, I'm not even a social scientist. Uh, so I'm not sure if I'm in the right place, actually. Um, I am an academic. Um, I'm an ex-microbiologist. These days my interests are in um, education research. Uh, and I'm assuming the, the reason I'm here is because I have a, a high social media profile. I also have an opinion about how academics should be using social media. Um, uh, the, the link at the bottom of this slide, uh, bit.ly slash ajcan, is a link to my social media policy. And um, it's a very short document. Um, it basically says, um, talk to me. Um, it's a link to all of the social networks that I am active on. And um, the irony that an academic should have a social media policy is, is not lost on me, and it's certainly not lost on my colleagues who frequently point out the fact that they consider this is maybe not entirely appropriate. But if I write something... I want people to read it. Now, I think I need to make the point that the view that I'm expressing this afternoon is a personal viewpoint. I was asked to give uh, a viewpoint as uh, an academic who who uses social tools. 
Of course, an institutional agenda uh, might be rather different, and, and, and indeed is rather different, and a policymaker's agenda would, would be very different. So I, I'm really only representing my own views. And the way that uh, we operate these tools was, was nicely summed up by uh, Amber Thomas from the JISC in a, in a knockabout conversation we were having on Twitter about a month ago when she coined the term PIMPACT, and she's actually turned that now into a hashtag. Uh, so we, we pimp our impact by, by discussing it in a public context on, um, uh, on social uh, networks, and such as Twitter and other networks. And... Um, the value that this has had for me as an academic is considerable because apart from the development of my ideas, apart from collaborative research projects, a number of grants and a number of publications I've had which would probably not have happened if I hadn't started having public discussions with people online, um, I have this slide which is my, uh, this, is a, this is a family joke, this is my European tour from January to June 2012. This is some of the places uh, I've been asked to go and uh, talk uh, by means, uh, 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 by virtue of my uh, publicity, uh, visibility in social media. And while it's very true that visibility um, is not impact, it is uh, a necessary starting point because as an academic, obviously, this is, this is the place we start to have conversations with people. Now, one of my roles... Uh, within my department is postgraduate tutor and I make the point very strongly to the students and the younger researchers that I'm mentoring um, that this activity is in addition to conventional academic publishing uh, and uh, activity. I've published my papers, I've got my papers in nature and science and, and, and all of the other disciplines, uh, journals which are germane to my discipline. This is something that you do on top of that because certainly at the present time it would be very dangerous for any academic to abandon uh, conventional channels of publication. We've heard predictions made what's going to happen in the, the, the REF after next. I think it's a very, very brave person who makes predictions about the REF after next. But certainly at the present time we need to be doing this as an additional activity. So I just thought I'd finish by throwing some things out there um, that um, are um, uh, some of the evidence... Uh, from uh, the Impact of Social Sciences blog, very excellent blog that you may have heard of. Uh, blogging is quite simply one of the important things that an academic should be doing right now, and it's, it's so far this afternoon we've not heard anyone demur from that viewpoint. There's this emerging field of altmetrics, of, of tracking online um, uh, various types of scholarly output that fall outside conventional channels, something that I'm very interested in myself. There was a report from JISC several years ago now about the economic benefits of new publication models, which showed very clearly that open access publication, for example, uh, not only means your work is more widely cited as an academic, but also means uh, that it has some considerable economic benefits. And um, uh, um, I've just thrown up some hashtags. I wrote these slides a couple of weeks ago. Um, if I was putting these slides together over the weekend, I would have almost certainly added um, NHS bill um, uh, to that list of hashtags because obviously uh, over the uh, course of the Liberal Democrat Spring Conference we've had a lot of discussion around that, people like Ben Goldacre, a lot of other people tweeting um, around uh, about the NHS bill. And although the evidence about the impact of social media is still largely academic, we are beginning to collect it together um, and um, uh, I think there is a fairly strong case that academics do need to engage with these tools, at least to be visible, and then we'll take it to the next stage after that. From my point of view, the ghost of the feast is still REF, because even with the nominal 20% that impact counts for, uh, the reality is that there is still uh, a huge amount of focus on the conventional academic channels of publication and dissemination. Um, so this is just one more thing that we have to do as an academic. Thank, Thank you. you. And now hand over to Professor Vicky Randall. Just return or hmm? arrow. Go away. 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 Go
I've been asked to um, talk today about what learned societies can do to assist this process of um, developing the relationship between academic scholarship and um, policy makers. And in so doing, I'm drawing on my own experience um, as chair of the Political Studies Association. I'm no longer chair, but I was until quite recently. Um, obviously, the Political Studies Association isn't necessarily representative. All of these associations are somewhat different. But the PSA is, I'd say, a medium-sized association. It's not awash with resources, but nor is it a, sort of a pauper. It has a substantial membership. Um, since 2010, it's had its own London-based office. Um, and the issue of facilitating communication between um, researchers and policymakers has always been of concern to the PSA, but obviously in this um, changing climate, uh, funding constraints and particularly the REF, its, it's um, heightened emphasis on impact, then there is more reason for us to be so concerned. And I have to say that the presentation earlier on by Simon Bastow suggested we cannot really be too complacent about this in, in the case of political studies. So um, something we should be working on further. So mainly I'm going to be talking about what an individual learned society could do. And in, very simply, I make a distinction between indir more indirect and less indirect approaches. So I think this, this again links in with what Neil Holy was saying about, you know, there are ways in which um, we can encourage, um, we can help um, to, to change the sort of the mood, the general awareness um, about, about research, um, which then may indirectly feed into um, policymakers' understandings. So under that heading, um, I could mention, and this is not really meant to be a plug for the PSA, it's just things that um, have happened. Um, um, the, the PSA has, has um, carried out a series of, of rather successful media briefing sessions on particular issues. Um, these obviously have to be very topical and they have to be um, appropriate for demonstrating certain kinds of expertise. Um, then also, I think it's a good idea to have a sort of um, more generalist publication. And in this, we were very influenced by the Royal Statistical Society's um, journal, The um, Significance, which was um, first founded in 2004. And I, I went on, I see, I see it now has quite a, uh, an impressive web presence. And um, I guess then that our, um, our similar magazine-style publication, Political Insight, may, may develop more of a web presence <laughs> in time. At any rate, I think this is a very valuable but indirect kind of way of um, uh, spreading, spreading knowledge of research findings, of scholarship. Um, and then again, this is just the thing we've done, we sort of make a point of presenting awards to various policy makers the best this, the best that. I mean, again, that's just a way of getting them aware of us and getting them aware maybe of different fields of, of, of political studies research. But moving on to more kind of direct approaches, then first of all, um, a society such as the PSA can try to encourage academics themselves to engage with policymakers. And in a way, I think, though I'll mention some ways, I think I... I've been listening to what's been said today and I can see that there's, there's more that could be done. There are other ways to do this. Um, but, for instance, it's important to provide academics with um, relevant kinds of information. So we provide information about when um, select committees are holding hearings, um, about um, we had a little piece in our newsletter about what it's like to present um, information to, to um to, at, a, at such a hearing and what you have to look out for and so on. Then at our conferences we've held um, relevant sessions. Um, we've had impact and in, an, an impact and engagement workshop at the last annual conference and I believe in, another is planned um, for, for this year's com conference. 
um, which is a very useful way of getting academics to think a bit more about how they present their work. Um, encouraging um, academics to provide a sort of a more accessible version, if you like, or account of their work. And I think I would have to add here, having been listening um, to blog, to blog, to blog, so obviously that's something we need to encourage too. Um, and then um, also, uh, this came out of a policy and um, engagement workshop, an impact and engagement workshop, the suggestion that we should be encouraging academics not simply to think in terms of sort of Westminster parliamentarians, but in terms of, um, well, a range of local authorities, devolved assemblies, um, voluntary associations. That's all, that's all appropriate. And then, on the other hand, I seem to have rather less to say here, um, encouraging policymakers or, or helping policymakers to, policy to be more aware of what academics are doing, what their research is. Um, and these are just, again, certain ways we've done in the past. We had at one stage, not now, a kind of Friends of the PSA um, set up where a sort of um, cross-party um, MPs, um, members of the House of Lords, we met them, um, wine them and dine them, etc., and just gave them some sense of what we were doing. But that's possibly, you know, that's just one model. But I think it is important to to get individual parliamentarians um, more involved in what the association's doing, um, one way or another. And then I think also more systematically, to the extent it's possible. <coughs> to try to gather information about what research is going on um, and to make that available, I suppose. Not just in a way to policymakers, but as it were to their minders or to um, clerks in the House of Commons or whoever it may be, that, you know, there's this work going on. Then um, also that um, a learned society such as ours could, could facilitate, could help to bring about events, occasions where policymakers and academics would meet. And we have held these um, award events, which are a bit sort of jazzy, but um, certainly they are occasions where um, hopefully the policymakers have quite a good time um, and they get to meet socially with academics. And they do, in a nice painless way, I hope, to absorb some sense of what it is a lot of the researchers are doing. Um, or, like more kind of... Um, narrowly, academically, we, we could organise, um, learned societies can help to organise events, seminars, workshops where academics and policymakers meet to discuss um, issues of, of a particular current interest, um, such as that which the PSA organised with Hansard, um, just when the sort of the um, expenses scandal was breaking and so on, about trust in politicians. Um, then also learner societies can play a part in facilitating communication of research findings to policy makers um, so for instance you could um, uh, help to, to bring together people to produce some sort of response to um, a government policy statement such as we did um, response to the governance of, of, of Britain Green Paper or more specifically, and we've done this recently, produce briefing papers on very sort of immediately um, topical and urgent issues such as um, the, the AV, the question about adopting an AV electoral system, or um, the reform of the House of Lords, something like that. Beyond then all these ways that the individual learned society can hope to... to encouraged to nurture a sort of relationship between academics and policymakers, then it's also important because we are limited in our resources and so on to collaborate with other suitable bodies, so with other learned societies, um, also with the umbrella organisations, which in our case are the Academy for um, Social Sciences and, sorry, the academic Academy of Social Science and the British Academy, anyway. Um, or also to add, you know, other other relevant 
bodies such as the Institute for Government, such as Hansard Society. Um, we haven't done it, but I was thinking we probably could also ODI, Chatham House. I mean, there's a, there are other bodies um, where, where there must be some useful collaborative opportunities. And then finally, I'm sorry if I run on, um, just because to reflect very briefly on uh, what one might conclude so far, um, I mean, I think it's very important um, that the issues, the issues that we focus on for briefings, for seminars, are generally very topical. They have to be sort of important, topical. And I think, particularly for an association like the PSA, um, they've got to be ones where we can show a kind of almost technical expertise. I think that's, we've got a particular problem because it's politics, you know. Um, we have to steer away from anything that would be more normative, more geological, um, if we want to be considered credible. Um, and I think also, although it's got to be topical um, and therefore in a way difficult to anticipate, I mean, up to a point you can anticipate that elections are coming or whatever. So, I mean, you can try wherever, wherever you can see something looming to, to be getting your pieces in place so that you can produce the, the response you need. Um, to the extent that we focus on parliamentarians, um, and I fully accept that that shouldn't be our, our total interest, but then you've got to be very conscious of, of the, the kind of um, imperatives of the politicians' life, of their timetables, of, of the fact that they really don't like to get far away from the mill bank or really practically the House of um, Parliament. So then, sort of in a way related to that, the difficulties... Um, these are sort of things we like to do, but it's actually really very difficult to produce, to gather, produce a comprehensive, up-to-date kind of directory or whatever of what the key bits of research going on are. Um, it's really difficult to motivate um, and to prepare academics for this kind of engagement. Um, and I mean, I don't think I need to say much more, but obviously... Academics, many of them um, are diffident, they're mistrustful, and so on and so on. They're sceptical. Um, it's also difficult, though necessary, to try and get beyond, as it were, the ring of usual suspects, the stars, the people who always are um, wheeled forward to, to comment on every possible issue, to try and get beyond them to um, the promising early career academics or even sort of middle career academics, um, to, re to reach out to them. I've nearly finished. And then beyond all this, I mean, some of these problems are themselves um, part consequence of more basic limitations on the capacity of, of um, uh, learned societies. It's very difficult to organise a rapid response to some breaking piece of, of news or whatever. Um, for instance, when there was this crisis of confidence in Parliament two, three years back, um, I, we received all kinds of messages from members of telling me, what are you going to do about it? You need to have, you know, tomorrow you need to have um, some big meeting and invite everybody and so on. Um, but it was really difficult to, to marshal an effective response occasion um, so quickly or even to kind of throw our weight behind some other initiative that would have done, you know, as well. Um, very difficult to find somebody who would take take that responsibility on. So you couldn't um, you couldn't hope for too much. So I think in sum, I'd want to say it is very important. It's absolutely worthwhile for learned societies to seek to improve this communication between academics and policymakers. But I think that the expectations of what learned societies can do um, should be realistic. Thank you. Okay, well now let's open um, the discussion up to the floor. I think I'll try and take two or three questions at a time. And again, if you can wait for the mic and say uh, who you are and maybe uh, what organisation or university you're with, that would be great. So does anyone want to start us, start us off? <laughs> okay, great. There's someone over there. Hi, um, Sean Rivers from the Centre for Science and Policy at the University of Cambridge. 
Um, we focus on encouraging the networking between academics and policy makers. Um, and I was just wondering what everyone thinks um, that the role is of interactions between individual academics and policy makers versus the role of interactions of the learned societies with um, depart government departments um, or select committees and how much should policy be based on either one of those interactions? Okay, great. Is any more um, while we're collecting some? Yeah, great. If you can just... <laughs> uh, hi, I'm uh, Stuart Muirhead. I'm with the Public Services Academy at the University of Sheffield, uh, previously the, the Scottish Government. Uh, I guess my question follows on from the previous one there and is more directly focused at, at, at Hugh, who was, who was talking around these areas. Um, we look to set up partnerships between uh, the social science departments in the university and third public private sector organisations in the Sheffield region and, and beyond. And I find myself, when I'm, I'm meeting with academics, arguing against the, the seek method of, of knowledge trickling down to a, a thrust method uh, to try and encourage them to be, to be much more focused on, on, on how they build their relationships. So I just guess I was looking for your perspective and how you can balance um, seek versus thrust and um, how this is sometimes balanced across the social sciences. I find resistance in some departments and very good open communication in, in others. Great, okay, and I, I've just got one question to add and then we'll uh, do some more. Um, I guess what would be good to think about is the distinctive, what is distinctive about academic research, maybe in comparison to some of... Uh, that we were hearing this morning. Uh, so what is it that, um, that academics bring that maybe consultants or market researchers don't bring? Um, and for me, that's something around expertise, which, as we were talking about before, is, is not something that's very well refre- reflected in, in the REF definition of, of impact. So uh, I also want to add that um, to, to the, um, for the panels. Maybe we should start with you as, as one of the questions was directed to you. Okay, thank, thank you very much. I think that some very good questions, three very good questions. If I take them in slightly odd order, perhaps, but uh, what's distinctive about academic research? Um, I think a number of things are distinctive, and you probably gathered from my um, interjection before the coffee break that I have some concerns that some of that distinctiveness is being lost as we democratise through a proliferation of blogging and tweeting, uh, and, uh, which is all very nice, and a bubble of voices uh, grows up, and, uh, and, I'm, and I kind of approve of that diversity of challenge and that attempt to try and be more persuasive and more engaging and so on. But there are risks that we also lose things in that. We throw the baby out with the bathwater. Things that are distinctive about academic research, it's theorised, it's rigorous, uh, and it has a critical and questioning edge to it. And we could spend a lot of time talking about what I mean by each of those, but I won't, I won't go into that conversation. That would be far too academic. I think there are distinctive things. I think they are valuable. I think we should be careful not to lose them. Um, I think one of the things that came out for me from the conversation before um, the coffee break was that we were very often uh, not really talking in terms of a currency of exchange. We weren't really talking about research as being the currency of exchange. We were talking about uh, research-informed expertise, if you like, or policy-savvy judgment. Um, And that's what was being sought, was, was better conversations that were research-informed, that were certainly research-aware, um, that, uh, that brought a distinctive take to a set of conversations around a particularly po- particular policy issue, um, but w- was not a piece of research per se, but was somebody who had uh, that kind of research background, but also had a research savviness about how they could talk about that research and engage with, with policymakers. Um, what role for, for interactions for individuals? I think it is about individuals and that's, uh, that research-informed, policy-savvy judgment uh, that we are looking to try and foster engagements with, uh, not just interactions about specific uh, pieces of research. In terms of the question uh, from, from Sheffield about building new partnerships, um, I think um, I would draw distinctions between the, uh, the sort of more instrumentalist research, that is research that says do this and don't do that, that has fairly clear-cut instructions attached to it or clear-cut implications attached to it, uh, and the much more, the, the much uh, slower, more slow-burning slow sort of research that what Carol Weiss would talk about, about enlightenment shifts in understanding, which is when we re-problematise and reconceptualize, and that's much harder to push. It's much more something that, it, that comes out of uh, conversation and engagement. 
So I, I, I would uh, encourage not uh, putting uh, all your eggs in one basket, but try and encourage uh, researchers to push information, try and encourage policymakers to pull information, uh, and try and encourage what Jonathan Lomas would term uh, linkage and exchange uh, to address a whole uh, number of different facets of that, of that exchange relationship. Um, Stephen, did you... Yeah, I mean, I, I think picking up a lot, a lot of what Hughes... I mean, I agree with you know, a lot of what Hughes said, and I think the thing about Carol Weiss, for example, was she, she, she did advocate, say, various models or interactive models, but, but she also li- listed about seven different ways in which research can impact on, on policy. And I think the key thing, what she was saying, was that they all apply in different circumstances, at different times. And I think this is very much what Morris Code and Mary Henkel were, were, were showing, is that there are lots of different circumstances in which research can play a part, and that's partly dependent upon the type of research, it's partly dependent upon the, the, the type of uh, policy makers they're dealing with and the, the type of issues that, that they're confronting. So it, it's often not a question of one approach or the other, it's that there are a range of approaches and that some approaches might be more appropriate in some times than others. And perhaps just, just to elaborate very slightly on the issue about what's distinctive about academic research, I, mean, I think the example I gave from the work of Isabel Allen there, I mean, that was clearly work of a very high academic standard. And that was important for it making the impact that it did because, for example, the Minister of Health stood up in front of all the royal colleges and said to them, you, you, really, you do need to make a change. In, in the way in which the medical profession is organised. Now, it was put to me very strongly, and it seems to me a very considerable sense, that he would be very unlikely to have stood up in front of all the royal colleges and have said these things if he felt, and, pro- and he was promoting this specific piece of research and said, you, know, you need to take action on what Isabel Allen has shown. Now, he'd have been very unlikely to have done that if someone could have stood up and said, oh, that's methodologically rubbish, that research. You know, that would have completely destroyed his position. So I, th- I think that is a, an example where academically, uh, work of academic quality is then able to make a, an impact. Great. And uh, Alan, the, p- the point about sort of individual academics versus mm-hmm. learning, I mean, I guess you would say that the social media just allows the individual academics to have a voice where previously it might have been down to sort of serendipitous bumping into somebody at an event. I mean, is that... that, that that's certainly a starting point. Uh, but clearly the idea that every academic is going to have a conversation with a policymaker or a range of policymakers is, is neither efficient nor desirable nor, nor, nor even possible. So what we see, I think, in social media is um, opinion makers forming, people who possibly summarise the views of a community. Um, and um, uh, not, not all um, research is... Uh, that, that is written about in blogs is original. There's, there's a lot of uh, descriptive and, and, and summarising going on. And Hugh is absolutely right to uh, emphasise that we, we mustn't lose the, the rigour and the quality of academic research. Um, but there is also a place for people aggregating opinion. Um, and I think that would make it much easier uh, for policymakers to know what a community feels rather than placing all of the emphasis on individuals. Mm. Mm. And I guess that could also be a role that the learned societies play in that, that they're able to put forward a, a broader range of opinions uh, on a particular topic for, for policymakers. Well, yes, and certainly um, that I, if I understood the point of, um, from Cambridge correctly, I mean, it's obviously not an either-all thing that um, either um, you favour interaction between individual <coughs> researchers and policymakers or learned societies um, at all um, and obviously learned societies should, should very much promote the individual researchers interactions with policy makers where they occur but I think perhaps one, one further element there will be that learned societies should be um, seeking to encourage those people who perhaps are less fortunately placed than your colleagues in Cambridge um, to, to um, think that they too could, could seek um, to get involved in such discussions such engagement, so I don't see it as either. Great, okay, can we take another round of questions? Uh, I can see there's one gentleman there. Um, thank you, it's uh, me again, Enrique Mendizaba from on Think Tanks. Um, I think something that came up in, uh, in, in, in particularly in uh, um, Stephen Haney's uh, presentation was history. I think um, 
in, all, in a few. And I think something that needs to be said is that um, history here is important. Uh, we talk about evidence-based policy not out of chance. This, we've been here before. Um, late 1800s, early 1900s, <laughs> huge amount of investment in modern think tanks with the idea of society as a patient that could be cured and treated. Then that idea then turned into society as a machine or a factory that could be made more efficient. And then it became, marketing came in and we talked about the marketplace. That's why we talk about the marketplace of ideas. So this has been, this has been written about quite a lot in the US history of think tanks. And it's quite an interesting story. Um, and we're back in this idea of evidence-based policy. Again, there's a huge literature of this in the health sector, uh, which, which makes sense. It's easier. And I think we need to think about how that applies to our world of where things might not be what they are, where things might change. And hence, the, the very important uh, point by Hugh Davis. There's a very good book by Jeffrey Poirier of Think Tanks in Chile. And he says, over the 1980s, think tanks in Chile contributed intellectually, but more importantly, psychologically because they taught politicians and policymakers who were in a position how to work together. They taught them how to have debates and discussions, and that they took to government, and that was what actually had an impact. So my question is, I wonder, what things, what specific things can academia and the academic methods do to actually instill those values uh, that Professor Day was talking about, those values, those discourses, those ways of engaging and interacting that would make evidence-informed policymaking more, more common, that would make better policymaking more, more of a thing we have, more, more common for us. Mm -hmm. okay. Great. Are there any other questions? Okay, well, I'm going to do another one then. Um, uh, I, I guess uh, we've, uh, our project looks at the social sciences, but we've also heard today from scientists, and, and um, something that policymakers say to us is that actually... They, they're looking at complex real-world problems um, and academia can often come to them with a solution for one bit that fits within a particular discipline and isn't very good at giving joined-up uh, uh, evidence or, or discussion around a particular thing. So I, I guess this is part of what academics can do to try and um, have an impact, try and help. Uh, we've heard about sort of, you know, how can... How can we educate policymakers? Uh, but more, what is there that we can do about maybe how academics, uh, universities are structured, or those kind of things around presenting um, complex uh, solutions? Should we um, maybe Stephen? Would you like to start? Yeah. Well, well, I mean, one thing that that I, I think your question is this is relevant to your question, although it's also relevant to some other areas. And I, I think that the, the role of um, re research units that perhaps have a long-term relationship with government departments can be very important mm. because there you can get the combination of individuals who are experts in their field and they quite often have conversations with ministers or with public civil servants about their field in general mm. but also they are funded to do particular pieces of research and more than that, because they have a long-term relationship with departments, uh, they can help to set the agenda of issues that ministers, civil servants think are researchable questions. And so, therefore, it is likely, well, we would argue, and we've done some research into this, to be more productive in terms of producing research that has the academic quality but is related to the needs of what policymakers have thought are, are, are their needs. Uh. Did you have anything? Well, I was thinking really going back to learning societies, and, but in a way, we're probably part of the problem <laughs> to some degree because we do help to entrench um, a particular disciplinary perspective and interests, our specialist groups. So I suppose we, would just, we should try and remember that and... Um, Impose self-denying ordinances on ourselves where, where, um, where needed. Um, I mean, obviously, sort of tactically, etc. We 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 do, and I hope we will more work with, um, as I say, umbrella bodies, academy of social sciences, and the rest. But um, perhaps we need to do more as well to encourage sort of um, cross. Cross-learned society, intellectual debate. Mm -hmm. uh, but I, I'm not sure that we do much of it as yet. 
We were talking earlier about the things that are distinctive about academics, and I think one of the things that is distinctive about academics is this this focused into a, into a very small area of of, of, of specialism and, and drilling down into the details. To think of, of Darwin's nine years spent working on barnacles, and I wonder what influence that had on policy. But um, uh, just from my own experience, I know that uh, I've been exposed to people who uh, I would not have been exposed to had I just published in conventional academic channels. So, for example, I've had collaborations with um, computer programmers and statisticians um, that have come out of, of content work that I've published on my blogs. And um, I think that, um, that that's a small-scale example of something that also operates at a larger scale, bringing people together in, in larger groupings online to facilitate the cross-disciplinary interactions. And it's, it's certainly something that the, the learned societies, I think, uh, have always tried to do. Um, and possibly now we have better tools to, to enable them to do it. That was a, a great question. I mean, we never do learn much from history, do we? Um, and Rudolf Klein said in policy in policymaking, innovation is a function of forgetting. Um, so uh, when we talk about I don't, the expression evidence-based policy is, is, is heroic in the assumptions that it makes. Uh, evidence-informed policy is perhaps something we might aspire to. I'd settle for quite often evidence-aware policy um, and, and, uh, and historically-aware policy as well. Um, what can academics contribute? What can they bring to the parties? I think one of the things they can do is talk about values, that policymaking and the way the role evidence has to play in po- policymaking, it's not just a technocratic issue. It's, it's not, you can't appeal to the evidence and say the evidence will help us make a decision in an ideologically free way. Uh, there are values in there, and we should talk about those values. One of the interesting things about the way in which academics get involved in engaging with policy is that the, the more, um, the more uh, uh, um, uh, critical and, uh, and contentious they get about it, the harder it is to get a seat at the table. So if you are someone who is quite consensual, quite accepting of the current, um, the current policy paradigm, the current um, uh, assumptions that are made in that policy paradigm, then you, you get invited and you can have conversations and you're all talking about the same kind of things. Uh, the more critical you get, um, the more you get uh, paradigm challenging about the the, the, the way the policy is currently framed, the more you will find it harder to, to engage in those things. And that's an, that's an interesting paradox that we have. When, when there are the biggest contributions to be made, it's often, uh, it's often much harder to get to the table and engage in those kinds of conversations. So I think we should recognise some of that and try and, and, try and find uh, ways of bringing some challenge to the, to the policy table. Okay, well, I think, unfortunately, we're going to have to, uh, to stop this session now.